Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in San Francisco. I'm Nathan Fox, and in Washington, D.C., I have Ben Olson. How are you doing, Ben? Doing great. I'm excited about today's episode. We have uh, an interview with Evan Jones and Joshua Craven of LawSchoolie.com. And uh, I thought it went great. We, again, touched on just all sorts of different LSAT concepts. We really talked about uh, games and reading comprehension and logical reasoning, study, scheduling. What else did we hit, Ben? Um, yeah, what to do, when to abandon questions uh, that you're not getting in the test, uh, what to do before the test on test day, uh, what not to do, really. And yeah. Cool. So I guess we'll just go ahead and dive right into the interview. Um, if anybody wants to reach me, I'm Nathan at foxlsat.com and Ben is Ben at strategyprep.com. Thanks for listening and we welcome your questions and we hope to hear from you soon. All right. So Josh and Evan, uh, if you could just take a, a moment to tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves and what you're doing in LSAT land, and uh, we can take it from there. All right. So uh, my name's Joshua Craven, and I founded LawSchoolie.com along with Evan Jones uh, about 18 months ago or so. And since then, we've we've grown to be, I think, one of the largest um, LSAT blog type of sites on the internet with a, about 65,000 unique users uh, reading articles from us every month. So we've got a, we've got a great audience and, and I think that that speaks to, to the content that we're putting out there. Um, we, we write articles on LSAT prep and law school admissions um, and, and help people get into law school and, and help people succeed on the LSAT. Uh, my personal story, which which I talk a lot about on Law Schoolie, is that I I started studying for the LSAT. Um, I took a, a diagnostic prep test and I got a 152. Um, that wasn't anywhere where I needed to be by by test day to get into the kind of schools that I wanted to get into. So I. I self-studied for about three months, and over the course of those three months, you know, I figured out what worked, what didn't work, and ended up getting a, a 177 on test day, which changed my life and helped me get into the University of Chicago Law School. And, you know, I also got a big scholarship from the University of Chicago. So, um, ever since then, I've been, ever since graduating from the University of Chicago Law School in 2012, I've been, we've, Evan and I have been writing and, and sharing our experience and, and sharing what worked and what didn't work on LawSchoolie.com. Evan, I'll let you uh, introduce yourself as well. Yeah, so uh, I um, kind of stumbled into the law thing. You know, I was living in New York City and not making a lot of headway in, in what I was doing at the time. And uh, I uh, wanted to take the LSAT. You know, I'd had law in the back of my head and... Um, Taking the LSAT, you know, really was kind of ended up being the thing that I kind of liked the most about um, the experience of maybe law school and law period. So that's a, that's a bit strange to say maybe because I really, really loved one L a year, obviously. But um, yeah, I studied for the test and at first some things weren't working so well. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of good resources back then if you're self-studying. You kind of had to like... Um, 
figure out by trial and error what the best strategies were. So I feel like I, after some missteps, I started really getting the test and bonding with it and finding myself really interested in the material. And then uh, things went pretty well for me and uh, got into the school I most wanted to go to, which is at the time I was trying to leave New York for a little bit and uh, be in Chicago. So, um, yeah, and I met Josh and we both were doing other things for the better part of a year following law school, but we uh, talked about, you know, our experiences with the LSAT and wanted to help people out there. And this has been a really great opportunity to do that so far. So we're, uh, you know, we're just getting started, but, um, just having recently fully committed ourselves to it. But yeah, we're, we're definitely enjoying this business more than the endeavors that we were, uh, working on before. So nice to meet you guys and thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Um, we have a, a number of questions that we want to dive into from our listeners. But before we do that, um, both of you mentioned that you struggled at first while you were studying for the test, and then something sort of clicked. And I imagine that you have a, a lot of advice uh, in that regard. But is there anything in particular that was uh, you know, a tipping point or... A, a realization that made it a lot easier for you to study for the test? And maybe, Josh, we could start with you. Yeah, there were a couple things. So, uh, you know, the first thing was finding the right prep material, finding the best LSAT prep books and the, the best stuff on the market. Because, you know, at least back in 2008, the way that most people, you know, when we were studying for the exam, the way that most people would find, you know, their LSAT prep books, we, you know, we'd go to a, a Barnes and Noble or a Borders and sit down in the coffee shop there and browse through whatever they had on the shelves. And at the time, that meant Kaplan and Princeton Review stuff, you know. And so I did that, and I was working with that material for for you know maybe the first two months of my prep. It wasn't until the very end, um, the last month or so, that you know I really started doing the research online and figuring out figured out that you know these books probably aren't aren't that great. Uh, maybe something else out there exists that would help me, uh, you know, dominate this this test. And I ran across the Logic Games Bible. That was that was for me a game a game changer. Uh, finding the Power Score books um, at, at the time there was the Logical Reasoning Bible and Logic Games Bible that were out. And we talk about this a lot on on the blog. Um, you know, those two books were probably the the biggest game changers for me. Um, you know, and then also taking the strategies from those books and applying them not kind of haphazardly, but really drilling specific uh, issues and drilling my weaknesses. So instead of just taking prep test after prep test, what I did at the time. You know, was I'd read the Logic Games Bible, then I'd go and and start with say basic linear games, and I'd drill basic linear games until I understood them, until I was very comfortable with them. And for me, those those two things, um, switching to to high quality, good LSAT prep material, and you know, drilling specific weaknesses, that was a game changer for me. Okay, thanks, Evan. Any anything you want to add to that? Yeah, sure. Like. Yeah, like Josh said, back then there was kind of a paucity of good material, and I think now, luckily, kids have such a wider range of options. But, yeah, for self-studiers, right, back then, you know, um, it was very easy to start working with, like, inferior material. So the Kaplan stuff, 
you know, I sensed maybe a little earlier than Josh that it was garbage because I had taken a, an intro to logic course in college that um, was really helpful in getting me grounded in, you know, logical thinking. So mm -hmm. that's certainly something that I would say people should do if they're still in undergrad and they've got an opportunity to dive into one of those classes. You're not going to want to bring the techniques directly in as far as diagramming and stuff goes, but like to give your head more time with that kind of thinking is really in invaluable. Like, and I, I mean, uh, so that's just as an aside, something I'd really recommend as far as what tipped me over, like, um, I'd say my biggest obstacle was logic games. And what really tipped me over was just spending a lot of time with it until my brain could sort of make the connections. You know, like I felt like, um, if I had done enough so that I was kind of half dreaming about variables flipping around as I was going to bed, you know, I, I knew that I was making some connections there. And sure enough, that work paid off. And just like maybe about a month and a half in, I really felt like I got it, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it, so many people talk about that click. But I think a big part of it is immersing yourself in the material and trying to the extent possible to, to enjoy it. I mean, those games are pretty fun, you know. And, um, and if you can immerse yourself and actually take some pleasure from doing them, you're going to have a much better time connecting and uh, getting better at it. So I tried to treat it like I did any other hobby, like maybe chess or like uh, learning a language, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just immerse yourself. So that's my big advice to people trying to get better at games. Yeah, and the test in general. I mean, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I, I myself took a class, but Nathan, you studied on your own as well, right? Well, yeah, I had the PowerScore materials, so that's that's what I did. Okay, so same. I, I guess I've never really figured out what you did exactly. I remember you said that you've taken 35-minute sections a lot, but was, was there anything else that you wanted to add to that? No, I, I was working for PowerScore at the time. I was teaching GMAT, and they needed an LSAT teacher, so they, they paid me to prep for the LSAT. And really, the only thing that I did was just the Logic Games Bible which, yeah, it's still great. And uh, used those techniques and just drilled 35-minute sections of games, and then that was, I was pretty much good to go after that. Great. Let's take a look at some of these questions. The first question we have is someone who's asking about when to abandon an LR question, a game, or a passage. So the example that he gives is he gets stuck on, say, question 16 or 17, in a logical reasoning section and he knows he's been spending three minutes or so and he's not sure whether he should move on or stick with that question and he's just kind of wondering when he should abandon it if at all and your thoughts on that yeah uh, I think I'd like to take this one like because I've, I've now worked with so many prep students and one of the, the true hallmarks I see of somebody who's more advanced got more experience and is ultimately going to do better is that they're more ready to abandon a question than somebody who's getting started. Like, um, and, and, you know, a lot of people go into the test not yet having learned to just abandon a question and move on. So I think like with LR is the most important because the thing to realize is those questions, some of those questions there are designed to separate like a 177 test taker from 
you know, a 175 test taker or a 177 from a 180 test taker. Those questions just represent like major sand traps, like quicksand traps that you can get stuck in and spend all day wallowing around, you know, or you could just come to accept the fact that there's easier points waiting on the other side, right? And and I think the way to develop the intuition, the intuition to know when you're not close to an answer is to obviously do a lot of time sections, right? Be cognizant when you're doing a problem, especially when you're first learning timing of how much time it's taking you. You know, if you start to be like, oh, this one feels like it's taken me a lot of time, you might have a split timer going, right? And you could look at how long you've spent on that one question. If you're if you're hitting the two minute and thirty second mark, um, and you're and you're not feeling like the answer is just around the bend, like there's only a few more mental tasks you need to do to uh, to be certain, you know, I'm marking a best answer at that point and generally moving on, with very very rare exceptions. And to develop the knowledge of when you might want to spend three minutes or um, or even abandon one after two, that kind of experience comes only with having done a lot of timed sections, you know. So occasionally I'll see a question where after two minutes invested, I'm like, this is a monster of a question. I'm not going to worry about it now. And if I abandon it, mark a, a guess answer and come back later, it makes it that much more likely that I'll have time at the end of the section to spend on questions I wasn't certain about. And often on a second look, it's like, et voila, it's much easier to do. So um, really, I can't emphasize how important it is to get good at learning to abandon a question and move on. It's one of the key skills of mastery. I think people think that uh, truly great preppers just have an easy time on every question. And that might be true for a very, very small minority. But most great preppers occasionally know it's best to leave a question alone for the time being and come back at the end. So... Yeah. So uh, one thing you said, you said a split timer. I, you, you're not suggesting to start a timer for an individual question, are you? Or I'm confused. I think it would, wouldn't be a bad idea when you're first getting started, you know, just to be aware. When, when I started working on time sections, I think this was a bit idiosyncratic and like just because I didn't know what other people were doing, but I would time individual questions, individual LR questions, and just try and kind of like, get a feel for how long it was taking me, not necessarily doing a full 35-minute section. I think that actually helped out with being aware of um, how long it's taking me to work through a problem. Yeah, I think, I think the point Evan makes with the, with the split timer, it, it's not something that we'd recommend everybody do, but if somebody is having a particularly hard time figuring out, like with timing and figuring specifically figuring out when to skip questions, it's maybe a technique that you can use to really drill in and figure out where you're wasting the most time and and become more aware and cognizant of, of that sort of thing. Yeah, everyone's aware of like parallel questions, parallel reasoning questions being a major time sink, but sometimes they don't realize that, um, you know, some other problem type might be giving them more trouble with timing than something else. And uh, do what you can to be aware of that and make the corrections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Josh, do you have any? Uh, thanks, Evan. By the way, um, Josh, do you have any suggestions for like when to abandon games or ever? 
So, uh, you know, for, for games specifically, I think, you know, I think game timing st starts with, uh, you know, organizing your, your, the section right up front. So when I open a, a logic game section, I take a quick flip through and see, you know, which, which games are, are which game types, right? I try to, uh, and then I try to give an order that I'm going to approach the games in, in my head, or, or I'll write it at the top of, uh, of each game. So, you know, I always do the first game first, but for the last three games, I'll, I'll usually, you know, sometimes if a particular game type is going to be more difficult for me, I think, then I'll maybe leave that one to last. So that's, that's important um, up front to do that quick thing, I think, uh, for, for most students. Um, to do that quick kind of analysis of which game type is likely to give you the most trouble and maybe leave that one for last. Um, and when to abandon a game, you know, I think it's, I, I very rarely would abandon a game, um, but that was that was because, you know, I think Logic Games is, is the easiest uh, section to lock down. And I think for most students, uh, you know, who are aiming to get every game, um, you know, completed, then maybe abandoning a game altogether might not be a great idea. But if you're somebody who's struggling with, you know, advanced linear games, for example, maybe, you know, maybe skip, save that one till the last. And if you're, if you're running into issues on a, on a particular game as you're working through it, uh, it's often going to be a, a problem with your dry diagram or a problem with your setup. So, uh, if you completely screw up your setup at, at the you know beginning, it's it's going to be very difficult to answer those questions uh, quickly. And if you realize four minutes into the game that you've that you've done that and made that mistake and you can't quickly correct it, you know then that'd be a, a, a scenario in which you might want to you know skip that and then sit, come back to it at the end. Nathan, do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, no, I, I, but I, it does sound like I disagree a little bit with that advice. Um, game, you know, and I'm, I'm open to the possibility that there's different approaches. Uh, but as far as the, the idea of, of selecting which games you're going to do first, I just don't think that students are very good at glancing at games and figuring out which games are easy and which games are hard. Um, like, I don't think I would be capable of doing it in a reasonable amount of time, and therefore I don't think many students are going to be very good at doing that in a reasonable amount of time. There's also just examples of places where the fourth game, the, that one game w with the New York, Montreal, Washington, Vancouver, um, Toronto, Los Angeles game, it's like burned into my memory because it was game number four, it was a, looked like a very easy linear game and I think if you had selected games uh, up front you would have thought oh well that looks like an easy game I'm going to do that one and I think it turns out to be by far the hardest game in the section so my philosophy has always been just to do the games in order because on average they do get harder as you go deeper into the section but I, I suppose I can see a situation where if you knew you just sucked at a certain type of grouping game, I, I could see skipping a game. But I, I don't think I would be paging back and forth 
through the section trying to figure out which games are the easiest ones to do first. Okay, that makes sense. What, a, what about a reading comp? Um, along the same lines, when do we abandon ship, if ever? And this student adds, you know, do you look at the number of questions in the passage? For example, five question passage versus an eight question passage. Should you give more value to the one that has eight questions and so on? Uh, Evan, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think it kind of tracks my philosophy on games, which is like, you know, I view those as, as timing-wise somewhat similar exercises. Like, uh, so I actually, um, I'll just track back to games and say, like, I, I actually go with the Nathan approach on just going straight through. But, you know, the Josh approach does does work for some people. But, yeah, only at the level generally of saying, okay, I know I'm worse at grouping games, so maybe I'll... I'll shuffle that one to last when I've accrued an extra couple minutes to do it and can have a little padding. Like So um, with reading comprehension, I'm always going through straight in order, one, two, three, four. Uh, and with abandoning them, I never would say that I feel like I'm abandoning a passage, only abandoning a question, you know? Because at the, at the back end of those passages, there's often one or two questions where you know you're feeling like this is a very difficult question and you're I'll, I'll always take like a, up to maybe a minute to try and find the line site to answer it but it, if i'm not finding it at all like i'm not going to sit down and reread the whole passage at that point to try and find the answer to this one question that would be just like totally foolish so um if if it didn't come to me straight away where in the passage I should be looking to answer this, and then a quick, like, tiny 30-second read in a likely location yields nothing, generally I'm thinking about moving on uh, and abandoning that specific question, you know? Oh, that yeah. might happen twice in, in, a, in a difficult passage, you know? I wouldn't expect it to happen at all in an easier reading comprehension passage. Yeah, when you've invested that time up front to, to read uh, a passage or to, you know, um, set up a game, once you, because that's, that's a big chunk of the time that it's going to take you on a passage or a game is just that upfront work. And it's, you know, so abandoning ship after you've already uh, kind of invested that time is, is probably not generally going to help you maximize your score. But abandoning certain questions that are giving you difficulty is much more likely to, uh, you know, to help you out with your timing. Yeah. So one thing is in, in reading comp, a lot of students, you know, say they'll struggle with uh, natural sciences. And, and the advice that I've kind of come to, toward is if the natural sciences passage is first, it's probably going to be pretty easy even though you typically don't like that that topic or that passage uh, so go ahead and do it but if it comes later especially third or fourth well fourth it wouldn't make sense but if it was third um, maybe it does make sense to skip it right away as soon as you realize it's a natural sciences passage which you can usually realize you know in the first sentence so do you have any thoughts on that or even like the number of questions yeah, sure. I mean, I think, first of all, you should have read more National Geographic as a child. But, <laughs> like, uh, beyond that, you know, um, I would say that, like, I try to not have people indulge their weaknesses too much. Like, if, they, if they're, if they like, into avoidance behavior, sometimes I worry that 
it reinforces like a lack of confidence with it. So with my tutoring students back when I was like tutoring all the time, I would just say, you know, get over it. All the information that you need is, is there. But I can see that being like fine advice too. You know, like some people, if they, after a while, they just discover that they don't bond with that kind of material, usually because they hate it for one reason or another. Yeah, maybe it's okay to do uh shuffle that off. Yeah, well, just so it, to, to interject there, I mean, especially if those types of people are frequently people who are only going to do three passages anyway. Yeah, totally, yeah. Right, but yeah, and in your prep, I think, you know, these kind of passages that you're having, you know, you're having trouble with if they're natural sciences passages, you know, I really recommend not avoiding those in your prep. You know, I think a lot of people are like, I hate these, I'm just going to save them for the end or I'm, I'm going to skip them. And they, so they're in their prep, they're kind of, you know, using that, that approach as well. So it's important to make the distinction between, you know, what to do in your prep and what to do on test day. Um, yeah, don't well. skip that. Don't skip that. Like, even if you can't get to a timed, don't just like abandon that thing and never look at it. You know, there's valuable practice to be had in doing that section, even if it's untimed after your 35 minutes are up, you know? Certainly. Yeah. So, Another question we have is, how do I analyze my test results? Uh, where, what's a good place to start? Should I look at the type of questions, the games, the passages that I'm struggling with? Should I look at the point in the section in which I'm getting questions wrong, early versus late? Are there other less test-related factors that I should consider, like time of day or location? I know that's a lot to throw at you, but how would you typically recommend someone analyze their test results after they finish a, a full test? Okay, so as far as like analyzing your stuff, I think Josh is going to give a longer answer because he likes uh, analyzing things as much as possible. And so maybe we'll go with my briefer answer first, which is there's one thing that I'm that I see time and time again here is people getting too hung up on like, oh, I performed terribly on a logical reasoning section in this particular test. I must have a problem with logical reasoning. And uh, I think maybe it comes from a lack of familiarity with how the test is built. It varies from test to test which section the majority of the difficulty comes from, right? Section difficulty balancing. Some tests will have like a hard as hell logic game section and two easy LRs and a medium RC. Another might have a completely different mix with two hard LRs, an easy RC and a medium LG or something like that. You know, so don't freak out over a perform poor performance in one section thinking that that necessarily indicates something major about your abilities in, in logical reasoning or logical games. That probably just reflects the way that particular test was constructed. Instead, you want to look at, you know, the types of questions. Am I getting flaw questions wrong with greater frequency than... I'm getting the average question wrong. Am I struggling on advanced linear games? And then beyond that breakdown, the next thing I do, the big distinction for me is whether I made a stupid mistake or whether I legitimately failed to understand the problem, particularly on LR, that might happen occasionally, that you literally kind of failed to understand it. And I think through um, concerted effort, you know, towards the latter part of my prep, I was never failing to understand because when you're reviewing tests, that's really what you're trying to do is make sure you never leave a problem alone 
without totally understanding it. So then next time you see a similar pattern, it'll come to you very quickly, the understanding of that problem. But, um, you know, make those distinctions and don't ignore the stupid mistakes. Stupid mistakes have patterns as well. You know, you might make more stupid mistakes on sufficient assumptions, say, and then you should learn in the future to be a little bit more alert whenever you're doing that problem type. And for me, I was able to eliminate a lot of stupid mistakes by being aware of where I tended to make them and paying just a little more attention, if that's possible, like kind of getting a little more alert on those problem types. Yeah, that's interesting. I um, I agree with you on the obsession that a lot of students have with like doing worse on one particular LR section or a game section for a particular test. What's ultimately more important is the, you know, the trends. If you look at the last two or three tests, how many do you roughly get wrong in each of the three sections? And that's that's the first thing I like to ask because I just want to get a big picture sense of okay, are we losing most points in the games or reading comp or logical reasoning? And if they're all the same, then that really means they're losing the most points in logical reasoning because there's two sections. And then from there, um, dive into you know the details a little bit more. I guess the next thing that I would ask, and I really have kind of gotten this from you, Nathan, is how many are you getting wrong in the easy questions because those questions are easy you should be getting them right and you should be worrying about those before you go into the harder questions which usually come near the end and then after that I, I, I couldn't agree more people have to look at why they got them wrong there's there's a total difference between getting a question wrong because you misread it or you missed the word accept or something like that versus getting it wrong because you just don't understand the logic or you don't understand what the passage is saying um, very different, you know, fixes, but definitely, like you said, something you should focus on in either case. One thing I don't focus on as much is what type of question, because I feel like there's a random number of questions, and I rarely feel like people have a pattern or that they spot a pattern and it's actually kind of misleading because it's just a small sample size or there are a large number of flaw questions or whatever. And so, although I do, I would, I don't think it's bad to note that, and definitely a lot of people do track that. I. I don't necessarily see as much value in that as opposed to understanding the underlying reasons behind why that flaw question is right or wrong, which would also apply in a strengthened question, a weakened question, or whatnot. Um, yeah, I, I do tend to agree with that, too. I mean, even though I think it's a good way to direct your prep, like I don't ever want to take the emphasis off the what you got wrong about that individual question. Yeah, so I, I think I second that totally. Yeah, you know? people... People get themselves into trouble with analysis. Um, like, you know, I was talking to a student the other day who had, uh, she was just convinced that she always misses question number 17. And yeah. she was asking me if she should skip question number 17 for that reason. <laughs> right? And so we all laugh. Obviously, we know that that's just a small sample uh, slash self-fulfilling prophecy. But um, I think all the, all the listeners out there, all the students out there really... We need to emphasize, study your mistakes, figure out why you're missing the ones you're missing, and then, you know, be careful of some of that small sample analysis that you're doing. Oh, totally. Yeah, j j I, th I look at like five to ten tests is like the minimum I say to look at. When Josh, is that a bad square with? Yeah, I mean, I in, unless you've got a sample size that's significant enough, you're not going to be able to really, you know, make 
statistically significant decisions, you know, or, or decisions that hold up over time. So looking at looking at that and looking at trends, um, you know, over those prep tests and over those sections, uh, stringing them together. And, and I also like to, you know, to pull out drills and, and what, and I always track those, um, you know, as well. So I think not only tracking prep tests, but tracking your performance on drills as well um, can give you a lot more data if that's, if that's uh, the problem. You know, if you're not, if you don't have enough full-timed prep tests that you've taken, um, you know, analyze the drills that you're doing. Analyze the individual sections that you're doing as well. And that'll, that'll help you give you a bigger picture view of your performance. Excellent. What kind of drills are you talking about, Josh? Uh, um, you, you know, if you're drilling, if you're drilling sections individually, or if you're drilling, um, you know, logic games, linear logic, basic linear logic games. If you're drilling game after game instead of, uh, you know, as a full section or as a full prep test. Okay, but you are referring to just like real LSAT questions. Yeah, yeah, real LSAT yeah. questions, not drills that some prep company made up for sure. Okay, cool. All right, excellent. Um, so the next question has to do with taking time sections individually versus taking them as full-length tests. Um, so actually, well, let me just read a little bit further here. It says, when I break up the sections throughout the day or over two days, as opposed to taking a full-length test all at once, I find that I don't gain any sort of momentum. Of course, everyone is different, but for someone like me, would I benefit from doing a section before I take the official test, preferably a section that I've done before and know that I can crush? So I guess this question is really about what to do right before the test on test day. Uh, any thoughts on this, uh, Josh? Um, I, I personally did warm up before I went to drive to the, uh, to the testing center. I warmed up with a LR section. Um, you know, I don't necessarily recommend that for everybody um, because you want to be kind of at your mental best when you go down to sit um, down and take the take the LSAT. So, um, you know, but if you're somebody who's noticing that you're struggling on that first section of any given prep test, or if you're struggling on a, on a prep test, um, you know, after if if you take a prep test after not doing anything for a few days and you notice your performance goes down, then for those kind of students who, who need that little warm-up, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that it's a terrible thing. I felt like doing a little warm-up section before the test on test day helped me kind of get my mind into that zone, and I brought that with me to, to the exam on test day. Um, one thing I'll definitely say, and it's important to note, don't grade that. If, you, if you're doing it for a warm-up, don't grade it. Don't even look at it. Just kind of get use it as a way to kind of flex your muscles, stretch your muscles, and, and get ready for the test. I know some people have asked me when to do that, uh, whether we're talking about a full section or just maybe even you know a third of a section or a few questions or whatever. When did you do it? You did it before you left home, or I did it before I left home. Um, you know, once I got to the test center, I I wanted to focus on, you know, getting in line, getting my stuff ready and, and sitting down and kind of psyching myself up, ramp, amping myself up in my head. Um, and, you know, so I did it right before I left, left for the testing center. 
Evan, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, so I didn't, you know, actually I'm having trouble recalling whether I did or didn't do anything before. I think I just read a newspaper. Uh, so I was, I, so it wasn't the first thing I had been reading that day. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think that w- this is a question of know thyself because like, um, mm-hmm. you know, in law school too, you get people who have all kinds of different strategies for doing tests. And uh, I knew a guy who was on law review who did a full practice exam in the morning before a test. Whereas if I did that, I'd be shot. You know, I would have nothing left in the tank before, by the time I get in and start typing my actual exam. So you got to know thine self and uh, um, do what uh, has worked for you in the past and experiment a little bit during this prep process if you don't yet know who you are as a test taker. Yeah, and that's that's a really important thing, uh, a really important point there is, you know, don't do anything on test day that you haven't tried before, um, you know, in your prep. So if you're thinking about your, you know, doing something the morning before uh, the LSAT and you're like taking an extra section, then I'd want to see that student, you know, do that over the course of the next month if they're taking the LSAT in December, you know, Add that extra section, uh, you know, before you take your prep test, so that you know how how you respond and you know, you know, if that works for you or not. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I remember one student who uh, they told me after the test, unfortunately, but they had gone on like a three mile run or something the day of the test, which was not their normal routine. It was going to be their perfect day when they finally actually exercised in the morning, etc. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, like by the third section, um, uh, she was she was out. So just totally zonked. But <laughs> yeah, and and caffeine is another thing. Some people always drink coffee, and then they like you know. I heard somebody say that you shouldn't drink coffee on test day. I'm not going to drink coffee. If you always drink coffee, do it on test day. If you never drink coffee, don't do it on test day. You know, gum, uh, yeah. Nicotine gum, anything. If you're, if you're a smoker and you're just for the first time chewing nicotine gum on test day because you think it'll help you get through, don't do that. Practice with the nicotine gum. You know, it yeah. sounds stupid to practice with nicotine gum, but you should know how it makes you feel. You know. Wait, wait, hold on one second. I, I thought gum was not allowed at the test. Is it, am I wrong about that? I think nicotine gum might be an exception because it counts as a medication, but I, I'll have to check with the policy. <laughs> so, so if you want to chew gum and you're you're not a smoker, but there's the avenue with nicotine gum. That's that's the takeaway here. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, Nathan, did you want to add anything? No, I think everybody nailed it there. Definitely practice uh, the way you're going to do it on the day of the actual test. And all of these horror stories, I mean, it's like it's like we're making up jokes about all the stupid things that people do on test day, but I think those are all real, right? I mean, I had the kid who, like, five-hour energy, first time he'd ever tried the five-hour energy, he did it on the day of the actual LSAT and then had, like, a panic attack, you know, cold sweats and whatever else from this stuff. So don't, don't be looking for the magic bullet. <laughs> Whatever you're yeah. going to do on your test day, you need to have practiced that several times beforehand so that you know how it's going to feel. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, so the next question is, I'm taking the test uh, in December, so coming up here in about uh, four weeks. Should I have my application ready to go once the scores are released? 
And the, just to clarify, those scores are going to be released three weeks or f so, I imagine, after the December LSAT. How do I know what my target schools are? So there's a lot of questions in there. Um, Evan, any thoughts on, on this, getting applications ready to go once the scores are released and knowing which schools, schools to target? Yeah, so I think these days it's it's not going to be fatal to your application to to delay for a little bit, but I shouldn't even say that because really it's best to just make the target for yourself uh, and try and get those applications out the door the moment you get your LSAT score. You know, uh, it, it's the easiest deadlines to shirk these application ones. So I think it's most important that you set yourself a hard deadline and meet it, you know, like and do whatever you have to do, like have a friend uh, threaten you with something or something so that you meet that deadline, you know, uh, because uh, I just think it's best to be part of that raft of applications that you know are going out then rather than after it because that's going to be like the last big uh, bundle that they receive, you know. Uh, as far as how to know what your target schools are, you know, I think the best thing there is um, to just judge it based on where you've been scoring on your practice exams. You know, take your last 10 uh, practice tests, look at them, and, you know, that's the center point for what your safeties, targets, and reaches are. Excellent. Well, I've heard somewhere that if you apply, submit everything in your application except for your score, that you, for some schools, you'll be higher in the queue when the scores are actually released. Doesn't do any of you know if that's true or? No, I, I, I've heard some conjecture on the point, but haven't got, haven't remembered to get a solid answer when talking to any adcoms about it. Josh? Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not sure, either. Okay. Um. Alrighty, so next question is if I hate everything about the LSAT, and this listener actually admits that he does not, but if someone does hate everything about the LSAT, will I hate being a lawyer? Um, I guess the question stems from the fact that the LSAT seems to be related to logic and law and so forth. Is What do you guys think, Josh? Well, I, you know, I do think that there are certain... Things you know, if you hate thinking about uh, you know things critically and analyzing them, and you know if you hate reading, these are things that you're probably gonna uh, you're gonna have to do all throughout law school and all throughout a legal career. And if those things are are things that you hate, I, I don't think you're gonna be happy in a in a career as a lawyer. Um, but you know, if you don't like the LSAT because you don't like standardized tests, but you really like um, you know, you you really like reading and you really like uh, the law and, you know, you, you don't have some sort of hang-up with, um, you know, critical thinking and analytical reasoning and logical reasoning uh, in a g more general sense then, um, you know, I don't think that the LSAT is going to be too strong of an indicator of whether or not you're going to like a career in, in law. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, to, I'm just thinking of myself. I, I love the LSAT, but I, I think I'd hate being a lawyer. So that's kind of the opposite. But <laughs> Yeah, I think that I goes know. for all four of us, right? <laughs> yeah. I think all four of us, we love the LSAT quite a bit more than anything else, uh, you know, because that's what we're doing for a living. Um, but maybe none of us would make great lawyers. I don't know. Yeah. 
So we do want to wrap it up uh, pretty soon here, but Josh, if uh, if you don't mind, one more question. This was specifically for you. It said, you said on your post, quote, how I got a 177 on the LSAT that you studied for 40 hours a week for four weeks. Do you mind telling us a little bit about this? Um, and, you know, do you have any suggestions specifically for anyone who doesn't have the stamina to do that? So... Yeah, I did study. I was studying about. I was studying full time about forty hours a week during that last month before the LSAT, and I do think that that had um, a pretty significant I- impact on my my performance on test day because I was I was like we talked earlier in the podcast, completely immersed in the material, and I was really, um, you know, I was really really digging in my heels and, and studying very, very hard for, you know, 40 hours a week, which, which is difficult for most people. Um, and some people just don't have that time. And I, if you don't have that amount of time, then you're going to probably want to stretch your prep over a longer period of, uh, time to, to see the kind of gains that you're going to want to see. Um, you know, maybe study for 20 hours a week. Uh, for me, I didn't have a job, and I wasn't I wasn't working at the time. I didn't really have anything else going on, um, and I was able to take take a month off and really just focus. And if you have the opportunity to do that, then I think that's not a terrible idea. Um, but it's not it's not necessary for sure. Um, and if you're the kind of person who's, you know, if you're studying for forty hours a week and you're you're getting fatigued and you're, you know, it's, it's just too much for you, then maybe you're, you're not the type of person who should be studying 40 hours a week. This is another thing, you know, that seems to have been a theme here in this episode of, uh, of the podcast is, you know, you really have to know yourself and, and you really have to be uh, tuned into your abilities and your capabilities and, and your limitations. If you're not able to stay really mentally focused and get a lot out of every hour of that 40 hour a week prep, then you should probably split it up, um, into, into, you know, maybe 20 to 20 hour weeks. Um, just make sure you're giving yourself enough time to, to do that. So if, you know, if you're studying half as often per week, you know, you're going to probably want to study for twice as many weeks as somebody who's studying, you know, twice as long as you every week. That makes sense. Thanks. So Evan, before we wrap it up, do you have anything you want to add at the end? Uh, yeah, I think we're good. I mean, I would just say, like, when you're talking about how long to schedule your prep, you know, like people get too hung up on setting a target date for themselves and a time uh, that they're going to allot for study. I think the better thing to do is just try to do every prep question they ever publish, you know, and. Um, you know, I would like it if I saw more students maybe even start studying without a date necessarily in mind because I think so many people end up rescheduling, you know. And uh, I would advise you to take a look at in the past something that you've got really good at, you know, that you were studying. And it's like, how did that work? Did it, did, did it come pretty right away after you put in a lot of time intensely or was it something where it took a while for your brain to make the connections? You know, and try to make a judgment on whether you'd be better off as a three-month intense studier like Josh and I were, where I think that aligns really well with how I've done things in my past, you know, uh, like, 
or are you better stringing it up into like a five, six month process? I think some kids are best off studying for a year, you know? So, um, you know, and the test is important enough to justify that. And if you, if you do what we said earlier and treat it more as a hobby uh, rather than like something that you have to do, it's not going to be the worst thing in the world. So, you know, think carefully about the time to put into it and make good scheduling decisions because uh, it's certainly a big component of prep. It certainly is. Um, Nathan, any last words? Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask both Evan and Josh what's going on at lawschoolie.com. Any exciting news, anything um, that they'd really like to point the listeners to go check out on Law Schoolie? Josh, um, you know, I think we've we've got a really good group of students this this uh, cycle for for the December exam that we're working with um, in our LSAT mastermind group, and we're seeing a lot of kids, you know, have have a lot of luck, um, you know, and and we're seeing a lot of kids making a lot of gains, and we've got a really great engagement with that group, um, and. You know, so that's something to check out. Uh, check out the LSAT Mastermind group at lawschoolie.com slash LSAT Mastermind if, if that's something that you're interested in. We've got, you know, uh, private forums and, and we've got weekly office hours. We've got a lot of lessons and, and things like that in there as well. Um, so that's, you know, that's something that's reasonably priced. We, it's, I think it's 149 right now. And, uh, and we're looking to get some, some kids in there for the February exam. Great. So uh, obviously people can contact you at lawschoolie.com. And is there any other way, like your email address or something that people can reach out to you with? Yeah, it, I'm joshua.craven at lawschoolie.com. And you can reach Evan at evan.jones at lawschoolie.com. You can also find us on, you know, we're on Twitter and, and Facebook and we monitor those regularly as well. Excellent. Thank you so much. So uh, I'm we're really glad that you guys were on the show. And just so for anyone who wants to contact us, I'm Ben at strategyprep.com. And Nathan is Nathan at foxlsat.com. And that's it. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys.